I'm Justin. I'm Marius. I'm Kay. And, and this, this is Comicsverse. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Comics First Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Justin Alba, Comics First CEO. I am joined by a lovely panel of co-hosts today, starting with the Kay Honda. Kay, how are you? I'm doing great. We should introduce the concept of today's podcast, which is an interview with Mr. Rick Remender. And you were the first person to ever tell me about Rick Remender. I guess I was. I will take full responsibility for that amazing feat. <laughs> you should. You should. So what are you most excited about for today's interview? I'm really just excited to hear his whole thought process and how he approaches life. What makes Recommender tick. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm with you. Tick his brain a little bit. Right. And also uh, joining me is Mr. Matthew Murphy, the host of the Longbox podcast. Ooh, yes. check that also, out too. Also the host of another podcast, I think, coming out soon. Uh, we're working on a little something something. We're working on a little oh, something, okay. something. Matt, what was your first experience with Rick Remender comics? Uh, my first experience with Rick Remender was uh, his Venom book. The co-host of Longbox Podcast, Tyler, uh, was like, you got to read this book. It's the most insane thing I've ever read in my entire life. And he got my mom to pick it up for me for Christmas. And ever since then, I've been picking up uh, his Marvel stuff, but I'm really into his image stuff right now. Thematically, I think he's one of the most brilliant writers we have in the industry right now. The other person responsible for my love of Rick Remender is Marius Thienenkamp. Wait, was that better? That was that was so good. I was just going to mention that you're getting better at uh, pronouncing my name from episode to episode. Thank you. You know, and it's something that I practice all the time. And what a lot of people don't know, Marius, is that you were here uh, most recently for the last series of podcasts. This is the first podcast that we've taped since you've been gone uh, from New York. Yes. Now that you're back in Germany. And Marius, thank you so much for getting me into Uncanny X-Force and uh, Uncanny Avengers. I know, right? Like when we first met two years ago, no, uh, almost two years ago. It's been one and a half years ago. However, I remember us talking like a lot and I don't really think I've met such a big X-Men fan before. So I was really surprised when I heard that you had never actually read the Rick Remender run on Un- Uncanny X-Force. And I'm so I'm so glad that I got you to read that. And we did uh, two podcasts and a segment on the FX podcast about it. And now we're doing an interview with uh, Rick Remender. So yeah, I'm really excited. Before we get to Rick Remender, it's a great time to remind everyone that you need to go to comicsfirst.com, check out our website, check out our podcasts, check out our videos. We just went to New York Comic Con. Actually, not just by the time you guys listen to this. This will be pretty far after that. But we have some awesome interviews from New York Comic Con, including we got Charles Soule, we got Chris from FlameCon. Kay has Phil Jimenez and Simon Graves and who else did you have Uh Kevin Wada. Kevin Wada. So we're getting ready for Rick Remender and again, check out comicsfirst.com. Get ready for a good time, guys. Alright, Rick, thank you so much for uh, sitting down with us and if it's alright with you, uh, we're going to start this segment with asking you about, about you as an artist. And, oh, uh, as, an art- as an artiste. As an artiste, <laughs> as an auteur, as we say at, at uh, Comics First often. Yes, well, I, yes, let's <laughs> Let's let's get up into my ass. <laughs> that was kind of the best response to alter I've ever heard uh, so far in this podcast history, right? Yeah, pretty much. Just stay, so. climb up there and stay there, I guess. The funny thought was I just had, I'm like, well, this will definitely be one where we don't curse. Yeah, just kidding. Yeah, it's cool. It's going to happen, right? Um, oh, yeah. I gotta, do you guys want me to not, not curse? I didn't know. You no, no, no. can do whatever yeah. you want. You know, usually it gets pretty rowdy. It gets rowdy. Yeah, we have a um, a, oh. a curse sound. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we're good. Right. Yeah, yeah. If, if you curse, the Phoenix sound from X Men: The Animated Series will play over it. Uh, that I, that's not my generation. I was I was by the time that cartoon came out, the the '90s ruined the X Men. You know, as a child of the '80s, I I I, I was not a, a I was not a fan. That's fair. Yeah, I was just coming around. Uh, I was late '80s, early '90s. Anyway. Back to podcast. Anyway, I was going to say, I think it's apparent to anyone uh, who reads your work what a talented writer you are. So my first question to you is, why comics? What is it about the comics medium that speaks to you? I found comic books around the same time that I found punk rock and skateboarding. I was about 11 years old, and they all three put their hooks in me, and I, I sort of found the things that I loved. And it led to uh, it led to the art scenes, you know, that I fell in love with, and and uh, cultural and, and musical. And, and to me, comic, you know, as a, as a child of of the '80s, comic books and punk rock and skateboarding were kind of the best the best of it all. And so as I got older, I I couldn't get rid of it. I, I, I uh, sold my comic collection when I was 16 because I was too cool. I'm done with that. 
But then by the time I was 18, I was just back to replenishing the same shit that I had just sold a few years earlier. And then I, uh, I, got a, I got a job at a comic book store that I managed for a couple, two, three years while I saved up enough money to go to the Joe Kubert School. Oh, um, wow. And then uh, went to the Kubert School for, for a month and, and came back to Phoenix because I had a girlfriend that I thought w- was way more important because I was, you know, 20 and that's what you do. Yeah. Um, and then I uh, got, got very fortunate that Don Bluth and, uh, and Fox wow. Animation opened up where I grew up in Phoenix. So they hired me as a, an animator's assistant where I was taught to animate. And uh, But even that didn't make me happy. I spent my nights making comic books, mm. me and some pals that I met at the studio. I just couldn't get the uh, I couldn't get rid of the bug. And so as life went on and I got older, I, I, I kept getting good jobs. Uh, I would get jobs in animation or storyboarding for, you know, uh, I worked at Warner Brothers and, and electronic arts, off, you know, and I had a great job there. And then I was offered just one good job after another. And I kept quitting them to make comic books for nothing, mm. which if that isn't a sickness, I don't know what is. Mm. Um, and so, you know, in, a, in an industry that didn't have much representation uh, in terms of genre stuff or female leads that represented the kind of, you know, people that I knew in my life, uh, I developed books like Nightmare and Strange Girl, which, mm. which had, you know, interesting female leads based on humans that I knew instead of just chicks in bio armor with huge tits that were almost exposed. <laughs> um, I, you know, worked with uh, friends to make Fear Agent to try to make some pulpy right. science fiction and mm-hmm. worked on numerous horror comics and the stuff that I thought comics needed more of to survive the, instead of just the same ongoing repeating soap opera uh, of the superhero world. Weird. And the more I did it, the you know, I started making books that I felt were pretty good. And the more you do that, the, you know, the, the deeper the, the art form sunk its teeth into me until... Uh, you know, it was all consuming. And then, you know, the bottom line is that even when people weren't reading the books, I was still making, you know, two or three comics a month, either Mm. writing and drawing or writing or drawing or, you know, inking one, drawing one, writing another. Mm. And some, most of that time I had to, you know, storyboard or teach or animate or do any number of full-time day jobs to pay the bills but my nights and weekends were still consumed with making comic books. And so to answer your question, the longest possible self-indulgent version I could give Mm -hmm. you, the purity of intention and the creative liberties and freedom of making creator-owned comic books are satisfying to me in in a way that very few things in life are. And so I, I enjoy doing it and have thrown my entire life at it for so long, I, I can't imagine any other way of living. It's amazing. So, okay, well, that's the end of the podcast. Bye. <laughs> like, what? That was the best response and very thorough, I think. And I, I mean, I never heard such a positive uh, origin story going into comics before. Yeah. Everything else is usually miserable, starving artists, and it's just like I, I worked really hard and I earned it. Right. Super positive. Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't mean to skip over the the misery. There was plenty of that. You're, you're talking to to Rick Remender at 43, who people buy his comics now, and he can support his family with them. Mm-hmm. Rick Remender at, at 33 and 23, he had different songs to sing to you. It was very, very frustrating to you know. There was years that I would make, I would make five, six graphic novels worth of material that I was very proud of, and nobody cared. Or the ideas would then get get literally stolen by you know a company used layouts that right. i did and mm-hmm. for things like sea of red you know you just have right. to sit in obscurity and keep toiling and making the books and those years were very hard and i was very bitter and you know there was by 2007 when i'd been doing it for a full decade you know and i'd learned how to pencil and ink and write and animate and storyboard and really just killed myself to try to learn how to do all these things uh, i was pretty i was pretty broken Unfortunately, it was just around the corner when people would decide that they would they would like to maybe pay me to read my comic books. And then that made things a lot better for sure. I mean, I'm just floored by the fact that because I I took I'm obviously I wasn't the same level of animator, but I'm familiar with how labor intensive animation can be and how like especially if you do hand drawn animations. I mean, obviously, digital is difficult, too, but that is so labor intensive. And the fact that you were saying that even after a full-time job of that at night, you found not only energy, but you had the passion to keep making these comics as well is crazy to me. Cause like I 
barely have like energy to bathe myself after like a part-time job and that's just like i can't even imagine it's, being so immersed in something like that it's crazy it's a crazy thing you know and i tell people who want to make it in comics not everybody has to pay the amount of dues i paid not everybody has to put in that many years working that many different jobs and learning that many aspects of of the craft of making you know comic books and cartoons mm. i had a long road to to it but it it the purity of intention and the satisfaction of making a book out of thin air with your friends. And then each book you make, it's better. And you're watching yourself learn and you're watching the artists get better. And you're, you know, working on something like, like fear agent and issue by issue, okay. watching Jerome Pena get better and better as we were building that thing and watching his talent grow and grow was so satisfying. And at the same time, it challenges you and you're having to hone your craft and every comic you make, you're learning something new on and that is an addictive it's an addictive aspect to this art form so i was wondering when you usually write i, I think i was just listening to uh george rr R. martin the other day saying that man i cannot write on planes i have all these speaking engagements it's going to be a while till i finish my next book so i kind of wanted to ask you about your process where do you usually write is it at home do you go to a coffee shop do you kind of have ideas going on all the time it's kind of a lot of questions all in one and then also yeah. sort of uh where do you get inspiration from and if you're not feeling the inspiration uh where do you go to get it i work at home i have an office out of the house but i i I haven't really been able to use it that much. I had a studio in San Francisco for 10 years with friends. When I was working, a lot of my time also was spent drawing, at which point we can listen to funny uh, podcasts, uh, radio shows. We can talk. We can watch movies. But now that I've become full-time writer McGillicuddy, I don't really have that track you know like my input track is is turned off a lot of the time i have you know hundreds of gigabytes of instrumental music and post rock and shoegaze and, and soundtrack because i can't really have lyrics playing when i'm writing in order to get a deep immersion i need hours to be left alone with no phone calls so when i'm very productive i'm usually up until four in the morning when in, in the quiet hours and and typing but of course, then I'm sleeping until noon and I become very unhealthy. So these days I'm getting up at eight in the morning and going to bed at 12, but my productivity falls off because I'm interrupted all day. There's email, there's phone calls, there's human children that I created with my wife. That I <laughs> human love children. Much and the human children want time. And, and, and so all of these things kind of contribute to making it quite difficult to, um, to get that, that flow. And I, I also can't write on planes. I can write outlines and if I'm really crunched, I can do it. If, if it's a if it's a real heavy deadline, I can I can write it on a plane. I can write when I'm traveling. But usually, it's better if I'm at home and I and I've got it. And I need to know it's uninterrupted. I need like eight hours so that mentally I know once I'm deep in the script, I'm not going to get pulled out. Mm. Yeah, very very delicate, sensitive artist with all sorts of like you know <laughs> accommodation rules for my process. <laughs> And, you know, uh, not to sound like, you know, a prima donna about it, but it does. It's about immersion for me. And, and that takes time and, and quiet. Well, that's interesting, because, like, it seems like from what you're telling us, you appreciate your relationships with other artists or having like a group community. But then you also need that space to yourself to create. So just to, like to lead into the next question, one of the things that you're well known for as a writer is working with artists you've had a long relationship with. Uh, two names that we have down or that come to mind are I'm probably going to butcher their names, the poor people, Greg Tocini and Jerome Opina. I think I think you said his last name and I missed it because I'm awful. And of yeah, course, Greg, they're uh, Tocini and Opina. Uh -huh. Yeah, Tocini and Opina. So like there are plenty of others that you've had close relationships with. Like as a storyteller, do you think that these friendships or work relationships that you've made with your creative partners has improved your work through the years? I think you answered this a little bit, but if you can go in depth with that. Well, I mean, one of the reasons that I wanted to make comics was I wanted to work with friends and create things. I didn't want to work in a conveyor belt where I do script and then that gets moved down the conveyor belt to an artist who then moves down to the conveyor belt to the colorist, moves down to the conveyor belt to the letterer. I wanted all of us talking and sharing ideas and excited about the work or else why wake up in the morning and do it? Right. So as I've moved through my career, many of the creator-owned projects I've done, the people that I've done them with, I've become friends with and, and we feed on each other's creativity and we become 
you know, not inseparable. Obviously, Tokini and Opeña and, and Wes and Mateo and uh, all the wonderful people that I've worked with, you know, work well with other people, you know. But I think that for me, as I discover these people who are wonderful storytellers and incredible artists and also incredible people who I like to talk story on the phone with and we're passionate about what we're creating, that makes the job pleasant and it makes my life enjoyable. And so, you know, like Tokini, he speaks Portuguese mm -hmm. and we met the first time at Chicago a year or two ago and we just silently kind of sat there smiling at each other and grunting and showing artwork and he's a, he's a, he's the sweetest guy in the world and he's just such an amazing artist but we 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 collaborate through you know poorly translated emails and 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 scripts mm -hmm. and the result is a very different product than it is with with like somebody like Wes Craig who you know we get on the phone and talk things out a lot right. um, the process with Greg is more like oh i wrote this and it's you know Greg did this and it's pretty close oh i got an idea and then i'll change things to fit the art and then he'll change things and we end up kind of collaborating in the strangest ways but what comes out of it is so unique and so ultimately you know could only be us in the in, in in the way we are doing it so i think for me it's camaraderie it's community it's it's continuity of relationships that lead to like jerome and i have an unspoken language you know jerome and i've been working on comics together for 10 years now mm -hmm. so jerome and i kind of I don't sweat things. He doesn't sweat things. We, we talk it out. We know what we're going for. It's the same way he'll he'll design things that that weren't quite how I saw them, but they're better and more and more interesting. And then I'll tweak the story to kind of fit that. And it's all about knowing the personalities and the people and, and the uh, everybody having their space while still allowing that sort of ebb and flow of creation. Okay, like I was, my next question was about whether you choose or you approach specific artists depend uh, dependent on what you were considering, like very specific accommodations that you would want as a writer or like as a creative person to work with another person. But since you kind of answered that with how organic your creative relationships and friendships are, we can skip that. All right. Just skip it. That's all. Uh, Rick, my question for you is, uh, we've spoken about your work in animation. My what I'm wondering is, uh, you worked on animated films like Iron Giant, video games like Bulletstorm. You're a multimedia creator. Uh, are there challenges going from one medium to the next, one medium to the next? Yeah, I mean, learning the formatting of anything you're working on and keeping it in mind. Like, when I was writing Dead Space or Bulletstorm, the video game stuff is, is different because they're not going to twist the whole game around for your story. Uh, so it's a lot of give and take. It's a lot of uh, Story-wise, I want to get from here to here, but gameplay, they have this happening. And so you mm. it's all about being being flexible. And flexibility is ultimately the, the thing that will help you survive any of this. Mm. You might have a story that's 15 issues in mind in the comic. The artist can only do 10. You're going to have to gut a, a bunch of that story and fl be flexible and figure it out. If you're working in a video game and, and they have some some aspect of the story that you know doesn't jibe with the story you were telling you figure out how to make it fit because you know right. the gameplay is going to come first in a video game and at the same time on things like dead space i would pitch you know ideas like zero gravity or you know spaceships colliding with you know the station there's things you big things you pitch in the story document that actually make it into the game and then for like things like you know uh, uh, screenwriting, you know I wrote screenplays for Triple X Zombies and Last Days of American Crime, and now I'm working on the Deadly Class TV show, yes. um, as well as a couple of other TV shows. That screenwriting is a very different thing, where you have to spend more time thinking about all manner of foundation rules and and up and down beats and the structure and and the you know the act breaks. But you also have to consider how the dialogue sounds as opposed to how it how it reads. Mm. Uh, th there's a bit of dialogue that'll read very nicely, but when it's spoken, it might sound a little unnatural. And so what I do is there's a part of final draft that'll read back dialogue. And so I'll play it back and actually hear the dialogue read back to me and go, oh, that perfectly worked if it was just printed in text uh, or prose. It doesn't quite work when read aloud. And so there's there's all kinds of different like craft aspects and fine tuning things that you do depending on depending on what the writing is for. That's very cool. Yeah. So I was wondering when you have these kind of uh, sort of episodes of immersion, as you were kind of talking about, how much time are you spending, you know, when you're immersed in these characters thinking about their circumstances versus kind of just getting into their heads? Or do you do one or the other or sort of both at the same time? I have 
a buffer period that, that's a bummer. So like today, for example, this morning I worked on the Deadly Class TV show pilot uh, for five hours. And then I took lunch and then went to the gym and came home. And I was supposed to then start working on uh, a black science thing that I wanted to pick away at. And I have a very hard time switching gears in mm -hmm. one day from one project to the next. So I try to break it out where I don't do that. And even when I do, I usually have a day, maybe two days between projects before I fully kind of fall back into the other story. Wow. So on a day like, you know, this week I've spent a lot of time in Deadly Class and Seven to Eternity. It's going to take me a few days before I can start getting my head into Grant McKay and what he's up to in Black Science. Fortunately, I have full scripts with, you know, scratch track dialogue. So I get the intention and I get what I was going for. But most comic books take me three to five days to rewrite the dialogue once I have the art to kind of marry them up. And I like to trim out as much as I can to make sure they're not too verbose and that I'm getting my ideas across in the most concise way possible. Do you ever have to uh, shake a character off when you're done writing for the day? Do you find that they stay with you uh, until the next period of, of writing? I don't know. I don't know if they stay with me. I know that a lot of the time what I'm bringing to them is what I'm dealing with in life. So they're probably trying to shake me off. I know a lot of the time that um, that I approach a story, what I'm, what's naturally sort of uh, on my mind or upsetting me or making me happy or interesting me or kind of ends up getting dumped into whatever character I'm writing through through the the the, the spectrum of of who that character is. And it's always an interesting sort of challenge in that, like you know, uh, if I'm frustrated with with something I'm reading about in the world. I want to write about that, obviously, I, that, that's on my mind. And so I, I shine that light through the filter of a character, but then have to consider how does that character see it more than just how I see it? You don't want to just make every character your, your mouthpiece for whatever you're going through. So the opinion might completely change on how it's being represented based on who the character is and what it is and how I'm saying it might, might completely change but I still get to tackle the topic, and so I get to flush it out of my head. Yeah, it's like therapeutic. Yeah, it, it really is, and that's one of the reasons that I that I wanted to be a writer. Uh, speaking of that, uh, you mentioned that you have two human children before, <laughs> and we lovingly call them rugrats in my family. So I was kind of curious, uh, you know, as your kid gets as your kids get older, they they see some of your work. What's something that you've worked on that you're like, wow, I would love for my kids to uh, to read this one day or watch this. Well, I, I definitely don't write a lot of stories aimed at kids. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe one day I definitely have, have itches to do kids' books. But I think that, like, you know, when they're older, I'd like them to read, you know, any number of the books. You know, I, I, I work really hard on them and I dump a lot of myself into the books. So, I mean, you know, what will be difficult is when they're older and reading a book like Deadly Class and, and processing my, you know, some of my childhood and, and my, mm. my adolescence and the troubling mischief that I was up to, <laughs> as well as, you know, some of the, some of the uglier aspects of that book. But yeah, I mean, you know, but there's also, I try to fill it with so much heart and philosophy and, mm -hmm. and truth that maybe they would find something to identify with that didn't feel like it was an adult pandering to kids or trying to whitewash the world into something cleaner than it actually is. Yeah, I don't know. Any, I, most of you know, any of my creator-owned books have so much of me in them. It would it'd be nice yeah. when they're older if they wanted to read any of them, from Strange Girl to Seven to Eternity. Yeah, I think that's really great because I know my dad is always trying to struggle to explain to me what his childhood was like, and is really well that's emphatic like, about getting it across to me. I think and it's it would also, be cool to read something from uh, back then that he wrote. Yeah, I think it's also it's difficult parent to child relationships and like maintaining them can be really difficult for some people, and kind of identifying your parent or your kid as like sharing any kind of similarity or understanding can sometimes seem impossible. So it's really interesting that you mentioned Deadly Class because, um, or like the fact that you mentioned that you didn't want it to feel like you were pandering to a age group. Like it didn't feel that way at all. It felt very personal. And I think that's probably why you 
been really successful is because every story that you've written has felt very personal and I think that reaches people so I think it will reach your kids when the time is right obviously not now that's not right but but no, eventually that, that yeah be, that wouldn't be great no uh, in their late 20s one day right yeah that seems like late teens late teens seem like when they're allowed to read my daddy's comics um, <laughs> you know in the meantime like you know I have plenty of Marvel books that when the comps would come in I right. would put them in, in the kids room and you know Captain America is something I'm particularly proud of my work in and and, and I would I would give those to my to my son and my daughter and, and they really enjoyed them so I've got all my Marvel stuff to give the kids now so that they can kind of you know see some of what I do and you know I, I appreciate the compliment one thing that was always writing to me is a privilege and it's something that I'm very fortunate to be able to express myself and have people uh, interested in it and that's a that's a it's a privilege and an honor and it truly is in a way that I, I take quite seriously and I always I was, you know, I wanted to make sure every book I ever made was my best foot forward. And more than that was was painfully honest in a way that people might even find something that they identified with and felt like they weren't alone. Because for me, those were always the best, you know, the, the best books and, and movies and music always made me feel like this complex, strange part of me was reflected out of another person. It made me feel a little bit less of a, like an alien. Yeah, like someone someone gets it, you know? I think is pretty cool. So before we break into the uh, Marvel segment, what's coming up on the horizon for you? And is there anything or and also where do you prefer our audience to go to to learn more about you and pick up some of your work? My work should be, you know, uh, available in most bookstores. I think that the um, each one of the books is a different flavor. You know, I try to write uh, from a different place and from different types of characters with different things to say. I'm very proud of any of the books, so I don't like to pick one over any of the others. All of my current creator-owned books, as well as creator-owned books like Strange Girl and, and Fear Agent and things that I've really poured myself to in the past, I stand behind them. And, and I, 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 I sell them proudly and, and, and confidently that, that you might not like them, but you know I definitely feel that those books are, are my best foot forward. And as for what I have coming up, you know, the Deadly Class TV show is in motion. There's some big news we haven't announced. And it's a very exciting time for that. Uh, I've got a couple of other TV shows I'm working on with some of my current projects. There's a lot of exciting potential uh, in, in other media for the books. And more than anything, just trying to fight out making unique and, and loved comic books that are created by the people who own them and given the very best that we have to give them at Image these days and to keep them coming out. You know, we we did hit a, a point in time where our attention spans are, are shortening. And so I always liked a story that I could dig into and it would go 20, 30, 40 issues. Uh, and so that's what we are, 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 are working hard to do and keep the quality up. You're doing a great job. Absolutely. And people can check out your stuff on rickremender.com, right? They can. Yes, that is that is the easiest place right now. Awesome. Because wouldn't you know it? He draws, too. He does everything. <laughs> uh, so let's move into some Marvel stuff. As you know, we recently did that uh, Uncanny X-Force podcast. Would you like to talk a bit about how it was you came to uh, to write Uncanny X-Force? I always wondered if these were characters that you chose to work with or Mary, sorry, you're in Google Docs and I, your name is over where I'm oh, reading. It's okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, I always wondered if these were uh, characters you chose to work with or if the cast was predetermined from the X-Force series that preceded your run. I was I was convinced that the way I wanted to make comic books wouldn't work at Marvel. I had done The Punisher on a run with uh, uh, some friends and, and Tony Moore and Jerome Pena and Dan Brereton and, and Roland Bashi and, and, and it had some of the best art that I've ever been associated with and it was a heartfelt, unique take on a boring character and fans weren't, uh, there was a large vocal bit of the fan base that really hated the, the idea of what we had done, turning Frank Castle into a, a a monster who was protecting the population of monster metropolis. And I get that, you know, it's far from the purity of the angry dude who's murdering criminals, but I kind of hate that, I guess. <laughs> and I kind of think that's some antiquated bullshit. And so we dumped ourselves into the Punisher and Frankencastle. And, you know, to this day, it's one of the things I'm absolutely the most proud of in my career but, you know, the fans were screaming, you know, yeah, I don't understand the Punisher. I'm like, yeah, I do understand the Punisher. But Garth Ennis already did this as well as anybody's going to. And I'm not going to 
write more of that. I'm not going to write more of Frank Castle killing Russian, you know, heroin dealers or, you know, killing right. a Puerto Rican guy for selling a dime bag or whatever the f- Frank Castle does. <laughs> um, and so we did something that was unique and strange and outlandish. And the people who loved it really loved it. And that's always the sign that I, uh, I've done something that, that mm. works in my mind. And the people who hated it really hated it. That's kind of what you want. But I was of a mind that that was it for me at Marvel. And they were developing another X-Force series. And at the time, you know, X-Force, Punisher, Venom, these were sort of relics of things that were really big in the 90s, but didn't really have a perch in modern, you know, in the modern landscape. They're definitely not the books I was, as a kid of the 80s, this was like being handed not what I wanted. <laughs> mm. You know, I liked, I liked those things okay, but they definitely didn't scratch an itch. But then Axel, and the, who was running the X-Men office at the time, he and the guy, and the team had put together this X-Force book, and he told me it would be Wolverine and Deadpool and Archangel and Psylocke and Phantom X. Mm-hmm. And if I asked if I wanted to pitch on it, and I said, uh, well, yeah, I do. Because those a lot of those characters I could ground in the Chris Claremont lore that I was cooked in yes. uh, as a kid, you know, from Betsy. Uh, Phantom X is obviously Grant Morrison, who I consider second, uh, you know, uh, second only to you know to the Chris stuff. I think what Grant did is fantastic and, and yes. imaginative and, and additive and substantive to go to with another if. But <laughs> I think that you know, in digging in that, I then you know, Deadpool was never like my thing, but I thought that you know maybe this is my opportunity to try and infuse that character with a humanity that hasn't that necessarily been reflected in that character a lot and he would be the voice of, of ethical reason in this x-force team yeah, and, so and that weird. all kind of tickled me and made me get excited about it so i pitched on it i wrote up a bunch of different documents and i uh, and, and i got the job sort of expecting that my you know my morality play would be something that you know the fans booed and hissed at and was pleasantly surprised i was very fortunate that Jerome Opeña was able to join me on that. He was uh, uh, exclusive at Marvel, and they had decided to move him away from me on Moon Knight, and they were going to move us away again. And I had a long conversation with Axel and, and basically pleaded to you know quit quit breaking us up and let me work <laughs> with Jerome on this. And he agreed, and he assigned Dean White to it, which was a great fit. And so we went off and made the book, and 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 it it worked out. You know, I think that for me it was nice to get to sort of spit out some of my love for those characters that I had spent so much mm. of my youth with and to, uh, to take an idea, which is a, a, an X-Men team that are murderers, which I kind of hate. I kind of hate that idea. I mean, I don't kind of hate it. I f- hate that idea. <laughs> oh, they're extreme. They're the <laughs> X-Men, but they kill you. And like, Oh, get the f- out of here with that shit. <laughs> um, and I was able to sort of take that, and make a comment on capital punishment and make a comment on the ugliness of what they were up to and how that all worked while digging into what I, I got lucky that it, it worked out in a way that it allowed me to show the beating heart of what I loved about the X-Men during the Claremont and Grant Morrison era. Uh, and I think there was a lot of other people out there who had read those runs and missed that aspect of the X-Men. I think I can speak for everyone here and saying that those are our two favorite eras. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, right. it started from X-Men, this whole thing, comics verse and everything. Yeah. So it's amazing that it's very validating to hear that from yeah. Rick Remender. No, absolutely. And you know, it's funny because in when I was writing the script for the podcast, we were doing Uncanny X-Force. I remember this line where uh, I think it was Wolverine was explaining that kind of the world needed X-Force. There needed to be this this team of people to kill. And it's funny that your response was what it was because I, I couldn't help but to think that these characters needed X-Force more than the world did because they seem to have this like kind of killer instinct or, or hunger right. for violence that mm-hmm. couldn't be satiated any other way. And I was hoping you could speak to that, if that's even true. Well, that was the one of the aspects of Wolverine that was always something that Chris did a wonderful job of exploring and, and something that I tried to continue with the X-Force. And as well as characters like Betsy, who, you know, uh, the original Betsy, you know, when it was steeped in all of that Captain Britain stuff, she wasn't a, a samurai sword-wielding Electra clone. And at some point in, in, the, in, in, in the early 90s, you know, Claremont and Jim Lee turned her into Electra. 
and 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 she became more popular. Look, I mean, you know, a lot of these things are born out of following trends. Archangel is, you know, you can read Walt Simonson talk about like nobody liked Angel, and I I did the worst thing I could have, and I turned him into Wolverine. But people <laughs> then liked it. You know, there was there were you know kids had taste that you know very questionable. But so the challenge then is to take those characters that you know, have that instinct and do things that's that are kind of rotten and to uh, really examine superheroes and people who are supposed to, you know, help the world taking on such extreme measures. And, um, uh, you know, they, the idea that Wolverine is going to, you know, kill somebody, so it might as well be aimed at the right place or that Deadpool's, uh, you know, if he's going to be a mercenary, at least be, be be hired by Warren Worthington, so the X Men are pointing him at you know pointing his swords at things. Right. It made them at least more more palatable to me as characters that that instinct was being pointed at places. But then ultimately, I just wanted to show how fucked up that instinct was. And well, okay, here's 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 the next apocalypse growing. And uh, so go ahead and use your use your murder you know, clean up the problem with a murder and then just knock dominoes down from that moment for the next 30 issues. That's so interesting. My my next question kind of goes into that. And I mean, you, men you mentioned that already, kind of your like morality play in the book and in general, like this, this theme of moral dilemmas that these characters are faced with. First off, I mean, you kind of got into that, but you, uh, like in the book, you assemble a cast that's not, that's really like rough around the edges and that's not exactly afraid of killing was it any challenging to kind of push these characters to their moral boundaries i think the challenge with a character like deadpool was to give him a beating heart and to actually establish some moral boundaries and phantom x who was the man of mystery to, to to kind of find a motivation for him and to show what his dilemmas were and for betsy who had been this sort of you know to take all the continuity and all the mess that it, that character had gone through and to tie it into something that made some kind of sense as a human being enduring that and what she came out of and obviously archangel to take a classic X-Men and Warren Worthington and examine this infestation. And then I came up with the idea that Archangel, the infestation, is an infestation to be the next caretaker of evolution, to be the next apocalypse-type figure. And you write all these knowing that the next team of people are going to come in and ignore it and, and you know, that there's going to be a whole mess. So I tried to write something that was self-contained enough that it it could stand on its own uh, on its own merits. And ultimately, hopefully, you have a story where you cared about the characters even though what they were doing was was very questionable and ugly. And you saw them as an examination of what happened to the culture of comic books when nice, good, heroic characters became boring to people and they had to become killers. Mm. Um, that was really what I kind of latched onto and was the most interesting part to write. All right. Moving on from this. We did talk a lot about this in uh, in our podcast. We actually have an uh, an ethics podcast coming up in the next few weeks, I guess, uh, where we also get into kind of like your first story arc, the apocalypse solution, which you just mentioned, uh, and how that, at least in our opinion, like really effectively works as a metaphor for problems in moral philosophy, such as the trolley problem, and. I don't know if this is like over interpretation on our end, but reading your run on Uncanny X Force, many positions seemed many positions that characters would would take seemed like typical utilitarian or typical deontological. So I don't know. It just it just seemed like you dealt a lot with moral philosophy preparing to write the book. Is that the case? Is that kind of like was that your intention? Yeah, not just for this book. I mean, you know. As the saying goes, punk rock changed my life, mm. and the ethics and uh, uh, the thought, the, the thinking that goes into, and the passion that goes into punk rock music demands questioning not only authority, not only questioning the world you live in, but questioning your own your own perspective and your own side of the fence, mm. which is something that we've kind of lost as a society now. Now we all sit there, and if anybody disagrees with us, they're naturally idiots, and we hate them, and we throw we throw ugly names at them. Mm. We no longer have nuanced debate or listen to what people say. And punk rock taught me, uh, and, and growing up steeped in all that that wonderful music, to to more than anything to to question. And a lot of what I did there in X Force was questioning, was questioning through the lens of these superheroes and this this 1990s idea that was just sort of 
salacious and mindless was to then take that and try to, to say something about the world with it. And that's a challenge I take with any book. I try to say something, be it, you know, the, the, the validity of artificial intelligence and secret Avengers to the, you know, uncanny Avengers is just a morality play as well, dealing with if left and right can't find a way to, to get together, the world's going to end. Yeah, you know, with any of these things, I'm trying to write from a philosophical point of view with some voice and something to say that, you know, examines both sides of an issue. I, I have a short question about uh, your Captain America stuff, if that's okay. Sure. So, like, what I kind of realized is that both in your Uncanny Avengers run, but also in your Captain America run, there are, like, very brief moments where... Steve is kind of like facing these villains that criticize what he stands for and the concept he's standing for. And he point, they point out all kinds of like possible flaws in capitalism, patriotism, and the American dream. I was always interested in your intention. Like, do you think that these American comics and American comics about American icons can be like a good platform to voice these concerns? What was that your intention? Well, I mean, yeah, definitely was my intention. I think that all, all concepts and ideas must be questioned and poked at and discussed. And I think that um, deep debate between these characters is much more interesting than painting one as right and one as wrong. That's the problem with the modern thinking, be it left or right. We all think that we are correct and in our hearts it's true and the idiots on the other side are idiots and f*** them. And so right. to discuss ideas and discuss nuance This is something that uh, Captain America felt like a wonderful opportunity to do that, to not just have a Red Skull uh, who was like, I'm evil and I'm going to shit on the world, but to have a Red Skull who had a position. And his position was that, you know, your, your, your capitalistic democracy has lost the, the debate. Your culture is, is in the toilet and uh, look around your country. You know, the devolution and the idiocracy is happening. And in terms of a character like the Iron Nail, who was going, you know, his, it, who was intended to be Mao's Red Skull. So where Hitler had the Red Skull, Mao had the Iron Nail. And, and, and this guy had worked with, you know, the, 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 a communist regime, but that he wasn't painted as a 2D caricature of somebody who was just, he's a bad guy, but might have actually presented arguments about holes in the American way of life. And things that, you know, might make people think. And that's sort of the, the challenge with any of that stuff is not just to write more soap opera or meaningless conflict or do the worst pandering thing you can do, which is just to stand on your, your soapbox and preach at people about what your point of view is. I always try and write both sides and both points of view to the best of my abilities so that neither one seem perfectly right because neither side is ever perfectly right. That's so true. That's a great answer. All right, Justin, do you think we should continue with the word association game? Yeah, but I, at first I, I wanted to, you know, I, I had a question I was going to ask about the end of Uncanny X-Force, but I think it's too long of a question. But I did want to say that I now refer to that type of flash forward as a Rick Remender flash forward. And I have to <laughs> say that was, was it? We were counting, and I think that's the seventh comic I've cried at. Nick made fun of me for crying at comics all the time, but he was wrong because I've just cried at X-23 so many times they thought I cried at a comic. But you made me tear, and I have to say, I was never a Betsy and Warren fan until I read this. So thank you very much for getting me on the Betsy and Warren train. <laughs> well, their relationship was a short-lived blip in the 90s. So right. really it was about taking that bit of continuity and then building on it and It seemed to make a lot of sense, given that Warren was fighting this infestation of evil, that Betsy uh, and he would be together. But it would also be this strangely unhealthy dynamic where she was a necessary component to keep him human. And that's the kind of strain on a relationship that gives a lot of potential for, for wonderful drama, I found. So I, I'm, I'm glad when people cared about that relationship. You know, ultimately, you know, that relationship... Breaking that relationship was was a lot of fun for me to do because all, the whole time I had always planned on Phantom X being the, the next natural conclusion for Betsy. And, and you know, I got to give them a happy ending before I left. And, and, and uh, it felt like it felt like they were the beating heart of that story for sure. The three of those and that, that love triangle. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think I think I was just telling this to was it Kay I was telling this to or was it Marius that like every word in that flash forward seemed like it it like broke my heart and it seemed like it was so perfectly <laughs> chosen. So yeah, I thought I absolutely loved it. Marius, why don't you go ahead with the word association and then we can move on to Kay's segment. All right. So uh, what we're gonna do? We've done this on podcast before with, uh, for instance, Chris Claremont. It's it's usually really fun. So what we're gonna do is a quick game of word association where we're gonna read out character names to you, and you just name the first word that comes to your mind thinking about this character. All right. Uh, okay. You ready? Yeah. Let's give it a shot. All right. Archangel. Uh, damaged. Psylocke. Messy. Deadpool. Farty. <laughs> Wait, are you describing Wolverine? us or no i'm kidding oh marius i talked over <laughs> i've already self-censored on that one so it doesn't work anymore yeah. all right. it's, it's all right we can move on to the next one uh what about kid apocalypse or genesis proud edition i i suppose all right what about age of apocalypse gene wonderful way of using a dead character <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask about Polaris, too, because uh, I noticed uh, Havoc and Wasp ended up being a couple in Uncanny Avengers. What do you think of her? Uh, well, I never read. I mean, I know a lot of people were saying that the Peter David stuff was was really great. To me, Polaris was a character that Claremont always tried to make work and never really stuck. Then I saw Wasp. I saw Janet. is such a strong character that... that Janet's always more interesting, got a better history, and I thought that if there was uh, an X-Man and an Avenger, that those two seemed like such a strange pairing, given given Alex's relationship, you know, and his connection to Scott and, and all that stuff. It seemed more interesting than than just continuing on the tried and true path. Very cool. All right, that does it for that, and I'll let Kay uh, move on and start asking some image stuff. I'm going to get out of your hair. All right, cool. Thank you, Rick, obviously. It's um been... A pleasure so far. Um, we won't keep you up for too long. Uh, we just wanted to talk about some of your image works, Matt and I. So we wanted to talk about some of the themes that we noticed in your works like Deadly Class, Tokyo Ghost, Low, and I think the other one, oh, Seven to Infinity? Yeah. So uh, we were just wanting to go over some of the themes. I guess to start off, we were going to go one of the questions was a little bit more specific to Deadly Class because we're both really big fans of it. Um, at the end of the arc of arc four of Deadly Class, the main characters of the series, Marcus was killed off by Saya. And all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna move forward with my question because Kay's a little lost. But uh, one of the themes that I noticed in your work, licensed and creative own, was the responsibility of fatherhood. We've seen it in Wolverine and Uncanny X Force, Grant McKay and Black Science, and as recently as Adam and Seven to Eternity. Can you talk about why? fatherhood is such an, a personal thing for you that you keep coming back to it in your work? There's any number of all, of other aspects. It's really family. I mean, just the same as like low is more about, about motherhood and, and, uh, you know, uh, but yeah, there's obviously been a, a lot of, a lot of fatherhood stuff. A lot of the books that I've written in the past five years, in, uh, uh, seven years have been written, uh, since I've been a father and having kids is something that's been, a fairly profound experience. And so examining that uh, from all these different angles has been, you know, write what you know and write what you're going through. And a lot of the time that comes through. In other cases, it's a matter of, it's just writing. It's just, you know, you want a family connection has more context and more emotional heart. And it, it won't necessarily be something where I'm, I'm personally dealing with anything. But I've also got, you know, uh, a pretty tumultuous childhood and some things that I, that I endured as a kid that, uh, that I'm working through in some of those stories, you know, a lot of the, um, in fear agent, uh, 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 there's a little bit, I think there's a lot of it in, in the flash Thompson venom. I think that that character and what he had been through kind of lent itself to, to exploring some of the, the that in some of those earlier issues, you know, captain America and, and his, his struggle, uh, raising a son in dimension Z and, and then Grant McKay and his failing, utter failing of his family is obviously sort of writing a cautionary tale of, of a failed father who prioritized work, even though it was important, and lost his family in something, you know, that's an interesting thing to write about as, as, as something to, to, you know, avoid at all costs. And it was a great fear of mine and something that I, I go to great lengths to not become. And so you, you, mm. you write these various interactions from different places. 
And then, you know, plenty of the stories I've written have none of that. You know, there's there's obviously none of that in, in most of the Marvel work. There's obviously none of that in Strange Girl. She's dealing with more theological questions of identity and, and, uh, and you know, and Lowe is all about motherhood and, and the right. perseverance and optimism of one mother, you know. And Deadly Class doesn't really deal with, with uh, uh, parents much. That more deals with... Um, Loss. Sociological, oh. interpersonal dynamics, and honest snapshot of, of the ugliness of, of the teenage years. In Tokyo Ghost, there's no there's no parents, you know, there's no mother or father figures, and that's just about a codependent relationship and, and addiction. So, you know, they've all got different things, but you know, I think for for books like, you know, Black Science and Captain America and Venom, I, I definitely uh, uh, dug into that stuff a little bit. Well, it's interesting because, sorry, I had a brain fart earlier, but I noticed something when reading Low, Deadly Class, and Tokyo Ghost, a recurring theme that seems to come up, whether purposeful or not, is the fear of the future or kind of this anxiety about general responsibility and how we take care of each other or how we protect each other and the nature and environment. And to counterpoint that, there's also a theme of kind of how distracting or how elusive or some things can be very, you know, something that some things that are very pleasurable, like that you can use as escapism, like, you know, sex or drugs or technology comes up as like this, an illusion of reality in all three of these series. Is that something that you consciously go into? Or is that something that you just personally have been maybe not experiencing, but kind of concerned about? When writing those, no, yeah, it's it's very much on the forefront of my mind, and uh, and it was even before I became a father, but it's definitely been magnified since I've become a parent. You know, the the reality of what's happening with the environment is is catastrophe, right. it, and we all go about our business arguing online over you know meaningless bullshit while the world is collapsing, and and right. we deny it, we pretend it's not happening, but it is. And that stuff is, uh, is it definitely percolates in the background of my head at all times. So, you know, something like Tokyo Ghost, uh, that's definitely, you know, uh, uh, born out of that and born out of that fear. And as well as seeing, you know, being old enough now to have watched culture change to where we've become sort of mindless idiots looking at our phones all the time and addicted to the endorphin rush of checking emails and Twitters and Instagrams and Tumblrs and Flumblers and, <laughs> you know, all these f things that we go do all day long. When we used to slow down and immerse ourselves in things and read books and have long, meaningful conversations or call each other on the phone, now we just try to get it across in a text as quickly as possible. Right. And there's a consequence. There's a connective consequence and there's a societal consequence. And so that book is a lot of me trying to, you know, digest and process some of what that is. Right. Um, and I also once had uh, a therapist explain to me that, well, I, I'll skip that on low because it's pretty much in the forward. And then for the last part as to why, I think that the the imagination, I had explained to me once in a, or I read it in an article that imagination exists in human minds so that we can prepare for the future. Right. Basically, the only evolutionary reason that a tool like imagination exists is so that you can imagine next year and that you can prepare today for it. So... Instead of going out and and shooting heroin and f***ing anybody uh, on the street and, you know, uh, spending all of your money, you can imagine a future where you might not want to have contracted, you know, uh, a number of STDs, be broke and have a heroin addiction. Right. And that, you know, uh, preparing for the future. And that's why they say the older we get, maybe our imaginations begin to dwindle because there's less future to look forward to. Right. So that's a natural part. So so obviously dystopic futures and futures that, that terrify me come into play and, 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 you know, play a role in all of that because ultimately they have been, you know, they, they come out of my imagination and my imagination is steeped in things like worrying about where my kids are going to live in 10 years or where any of us are going to be in 20 years. But I think that that's why it's so important and interesting to hear that, you know, coming from you and also seeing that in your writing, because I think especially in Low, there's this idea that, you know, there's truth and there's purity in art or there's something beautiful about what you were saying about imagination where, you know, that's where hope is, that's where faith is. And I think that that 
belief does come through very passionately in all of the series. In Deadly Class, maybe not as much in the forefront as, say, Low, but Deadly Class still has that, you know, that hope. Like, I remember reading Marcus just being so hopeful and being, you know, wanting to free himself from the King's Dominion school and, you know, starting again. And it's so, like, it's nice to see that there's a ju- juxtaposition between, like, this high anxiety about what's going to happen in the future, but then also it's tempered with this kind of pure, this purity in art and in faith and hope. Well, yeah, I, I definitely try to write them all from different places and, and write the characters perspective and, and how they deal with the, the, the worlds they're in in different ways so that I can also investigate those different ideas for myself. Right. I had another quick question uh, about a recurring thing. I, I recently read over a few of your creative-owned books before the interview, and I noticed something that I never really came across before. And it's, uh, so a lot of the male characters like uh, Grant McKay, Ledent, Marcus, they all share one single character trait, and that that's narcissism. In your opinion, is narcissism an inherent trait for these characters? And if so, why is it so prevalent? In Led's case, he's a narcissist out of uh, damage and protecting himself. Um, he's, he's fallen into himself the way that many, many people do in the self-reflecting pool of the internet. Marcus, I don't think he is a narcissist. Grant, he would, other, he would, he might even apply that to himself, but I don't think Grant's a narcissist. I think Grant is somebody who, as we develop in the fourth arc and the God world arc and kind of dug into his character there, Grant is more someone who saw a problem with the environment he saw, as right. a scientist and a genius, a way to fix that by pilfering the resources needed and the technology needed to fix it from other dimensions as the only way to protect his children. And so in Grant's mind, it's a defensible position that he threw his entire life into building a pillar so that his his children would have a future. And to him, that meant more, ultimately, than than spending time with them. But he's a child of abuse, and as a child of abuse, he expected abandonment and thus kind of moved towards fulfilling that abandonment before the, his family could abandon him again like his like his like his dad did and that abandonment issue is a big part of of what happens to children of abuse but yeah i mean you know led's narcissism is is real and and, and definitely i think that um it, it, marcus is arguable i i i what 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 aspect of marcus did you did you find as narcissistic I think it's really and it really came across as this relationship with maria it's that and after reading the fourth arc last night it became less as much as that he's so guarded and his defense is up that he only cares about what happens to him and he doesn't care about how his actions affect any other character i don't know if it's that he doesn't care it's just that he doesn't he doesn't think that he deserves anything so he's like so he like he like pushes anything that doesn't that gives him any remote happiness away because he's like no i don't deserve that like this it's, yeah, right. it's also a defense mechanism you know he's a he's a he's a he's a kid who's lost his parents and lost everything and so he's he's not necessarily unempathetic or or, or narcissistic but he's protecting himself from damage i think also, at least in my, at least in my mind yeah i think that comes through because there's also an element of like you were mentioning earlier, but like we've all experienced it. Like when you're a teenager, we mentioned in the Deadly Class podcast as well. It's like you front, you know, like when you're that age, you're like, yeah, I'm For totally sure. a narcissistic asshole. Like totally like give me the like pass me the PCP or whatever. Like, you know, you just front. Pass me the PCP. Kid. I don't. Well, I don't know. Just whatever. No, life you're right. You're living. It's, it's so much of it is fronting. And so much of it is trying to trying to perpetrate that that idea that you're tough and and you know like surviving the the vicious network of of, uh, of adolescent cliques, that's something that a lot of us fall into. And you have to act disaffected and sort of act apathetic. And we see a lot of that with Marcus, a lot of that with Willie, uh, yeah, in order to mask mm-hmm. the true sort of you know sensitive and broken nature of of who those people are. Yeah, I mean. This is kind of an awkward way to end, but I think um, my last question has to do with kind of whether we're going to see you write as well as pencil and do art for just like, you know, Jeff Lemire and just do your own comic on your own terms and do everything since it does seem that, you know, creator owned comics is where it's at and you feel the most comfortable there. Uh, Is that something that you would be interested in doing in the future? I play with it all the time. 
Ultimately, I find that the um, by just doing one of the jobs, by just writing, I'm able to write, uh, uh, spend more time on it, and, and 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 focus and dig deeper into the writing. And I think that my writing is is better because of it. I think that that as a true cartoonist, you know, splitting, I, I would if I was going to write and draw a book, I would have to stop doing everything else basically. Yeah. Um, and then that one project would have to own all of my time and attention. Right. And I, at this point, you know, after I write 20 pages every week, I'm so kind of addicted to that that expression and right. and, uh, and that momentum. I don't know if I could go back to then looking at a story for a week as I write it and then another six weeks as I draw it. Right. Looking at one story for seven, eight, nine, you know, weeks all right. on my own. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I, when I think about it, that sounds, um, that sounds less, less desirable than, than writing stories for, you know, some of, some of these guys that, that I'm lucky enough to work with, but who knows? Yeah. I mean, in the future when I'm older and tired, maybe. So a soft, yes, <laughs> I'll say a soft, yes. A maybe. Huge, how about a huge, maybe. Yeah. Okay. A soft, maybe. Okay. I'll take that. I'll take that. Okay. But yeah, I think that that might be the end of everything i know that you have things uh, many things to do i'm sure so we can conclude this lovely podcast with you excellent yeah thanks again for sitting down with us we went way over time so we really really appreciate yeah, it. yeah thank you so much thank you for taking the time it's been great absolutely yes. yeah it, a lot of great questions and, and i appreciate all the support and, and the fact you guys read the books and, and care enough to have the questions well thank you for being so informative thank you so much. Yeah. yeah we hope to run into you next time you're in new york <laughs> yeah perfect for sure. Absolutely. Thanks right. again. We'll All chat right. soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Rick. Bye. I thought that was a great interview. Thank you guys so much for joining me over here, my wonderful panel. Of course. Happy it was, to be here. Yeah, it was a pleasure. What was uh what did you think was the most enlightening answer? Okay. I don't know if he had the most enlightening answer. I think from my experience from it, I thought that it was nice to just see that all of the themes and all of the things that he addresses in his books when he writes them are, you know, validated by him and then also backed by like all this thought that he goes through or like a thought process that he goes to. Yeah, I loved how introspective he was. Yeah, it was really, really nice. But it was, yeah, it was super awesome. Murphs, how about you? I like how good of a storyteller he is. Like For we've sure. seen it in his comics, but like getting to sit down with him, like he told us about where he came from, how mm-hmm. he got there, each little part of how, what went into each book, like the Punisher story, I would have I would have never guessed. Right, they hates Punisher. Yeah, totally blew my mind. But like he he kept us engaged. He kept us wanting more. Right. And like it just goes to show that no matter what he's doing, he's a good storyteller. For sure. I feels like he would have been a great person to get a beer with and have a discussion about comics with and just talk about writing and art i feel like if you just i feel like yeah he's definitely someone who you would want to sit down and talk to but like a top like a general conversation about comics would soon become this like really important conversation like discussion conversation, about yeah. like social political right issues and what's wrong with culture and how we can fix it and like uh, you know who can fix it him me Oh, oh no, him. Say Donald Trump. I was. I was going to say Donald Trump, but then I was like, I don't want to. In case he gets sued. And we just lost all Yeah, we lost. Anyway. (laughs) We lost all our listeners. Matt, what was your favorite part of the interview? I just said it. No, I asked. Oh, just kidding. (laughs) I thought I asked you a different question. Like, what was. I thought I asked you a more specific question. No, I guess not. Look, I don't remember. That was it. Okay, cool. I think think so. All right. Uh, I have no more questions for you then. Marius, how about you? What was your favorite part of the interview? I really like to get more into like his personal life philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. It was just interesting to see how punk rock like changed his view on things and like philosophical approach and how we need dialogue about basically everything and in, in each of his books. So that was that was cool. But it was also interesting to find out how he how he basically hated so many characters he uh, wrote about, but ended up being really good at writing them. So, I mean, yes, it's it was really, really inspiring. He did not like the 90s, not one bit. No, I can't play. I don't blame I always, him, though. I always, I always thought I was, like, the the only person who disliked 90s X-Men. Oh, no, I think most people. I, I, I mean, mean, I was out before Onslaught came. What year was that, 94? I was born before that. Yeah, I think so. I was gone right after AOA. I I was born in like the early nineties, so I didn't start reading it until I got to high school. Right. And I I didn't start appreciating it until I got to like 
around last year I started really getting into like Rob Liefeld and stuff and it's not really the content I like it's the stylized right of the artists that I'm really into because the content wasn't really there it's really just how it looks that got me right so I, I understand where he's coming from oh I completely do as well and I think that you know comics as a medium were definitely struggling uh during the 90s and it's awesome to see how much they've bounced back in 2016 and it was awesome to hear about his upcoming TV projects from Deadly Class and I'm stuff. so excited yes that if, show's gonna be insane. Insane. I don't know. Is he doing it on HBO? Like, how is he doing? Oh that? my god! Yes. I hope so. That would be so dope. I know he said there's gonna be information coming soon, so that Ooh, should be exciting. Stay tuned because we'll have that on ComicsFirst.com. Get will. that casting, that face sheet, yo. Mm-hmm. This would be a good time to tell you guys that I'm starring in a remake of Evita. I don't know what really? that is. Yeah. That's a nice. I'll role be playing for you. the role of the train. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a big role. I don't I don't know what I'm talking about. I, <laughs> I haven't seen that movie in 25 years, but cool. Anyway, I digress. Marius, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Marius. It was a pleasure. Yes. And thank you guys. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Kay. Happy to be. I just did a princess wave. It was, <laughs> you, you was actually, I was like, <laughs> it was ooh. Really yeah, you, you missed it. Yeah, I was like, I was like, I thought I was among royalty. <laughs> It was, I try. I try. Yeah. yeah, it was very white of you. I was like first Rick Remender and now Matt Murphy. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, that was that was one of those quiet laughs <laughs> where he wasn't really laughing. But thank you guys all for listening. Remember, go to comicsfirst.com and. <laughs> <laughs>